In this episode, I have an interview with the creators of Mythic Babylon, and I get personal with some discussions about the rules and some campaign concepts. Welcome to the Mithras Matters podcast, season one, episode four, by the Mithras of Babylon. Welcome to episode four of the Mithras Matters podcast. I've just come out of a heat wave here in the United Kingdom, so I'm looking forward to some cooler weather in which to write more content for my own campaign and also some new Mithras rule videos for YouTube. Now, if you're still catching up on last month's episode of the podcast, you will have missed Lawrence Whitaker's tempting sneak preview of Codifoot Stipule. Now, do go back and have a listen, but as a further hook, here is a description of the adventure taken from the actual module. A small town on the coast has a distinct problem. Its fishermen are going missing, vanishing from seas with their boats and catches, never to be seen again. People are scared. Could this have something to do with the wizard Codifoot, who once lived in the tower? Never. He disappeared 20 years before. So perhaps this is mere coincidence. This module is now available for $4.99 from the Design Mechanism webpage. I've actually bought it and read it. My copy came last week. And although I don't run a Lioness, Leoness campaign. I don't have enough players and time in the week to run all the campaigns I would like to. I would say that I'm definitely going to be able to adapt this module to my own campaign setting. All your Leoness, all you Leoness fans will definitely, absolutely love it. Now, one of the aspects of Mithras I really like is the wealth of settings available in which GMs and players can adventure together. Many of these are attuned to historical periods of time. We have already heard about the wetlands supplement of mythic Britain and the city of power Furichita. And for this episode, I have had an interesting chat with Chris and Paul about the setting for mythic Babylon, which they are currently working on. So let's enjoy the interview. Paul and Chris, it's fantastic to... Um, connect to you after several emails and it's really nice to talk to you about a fantastic new supplement that it's on its way to join the Mithras family. So I wonder first of all could you let us know what you've been working on and um, what is the new supplement that's coming for Mithras? Well it's Mythic Babylon. It's a setting supplement for Mithras and covers the period, the old Babylonian period. It covers the old Babylonian period, which um, we've given a specific start date of about 1765 BC. 
but you can span a period of several hundred years with the book without any major uh, adaptations. And uh, obviously it covers the period of Babylon, uh, the, uh, the location of Babylon, Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. And uh, one of the things I was really interested in was whether or not it was following um, the actual historic setting um, along the uh, in Mesopotamia. Is that the idea behind these um, supplement that it's historically correct? It's historically as correct as I could make it, or we could make it, I should say. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was originally designed to be historical, and we added the mythical a bit later. So we've got the two elements at play here. We've got this whole clash of great kingdoms. Oh. Mm. So it's the time of sort of the rise of Babylon under Hammurabi and the rivalries between Babylon and Elam and Mari. And that's one element of this. And then, of course, there's all the mythical stuff with, you know, monsters and magic right. going on, which is another direction to take things in. Of course, the two can coincide. Yeah. So, so what was the inspiration for it? Who inspired whom? Yeah, I, I... Well, Chris, Chris, Chris wrote to me and asked, hey, do you want to do a mythic, mythic Mesopotamia thing? And I said, sure. I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I have to say I was originally inspired by Glorantha, of all things. Because Glorantha is often billed as a Bronze Age setting, and it does have some Bronze, bronze Age elements, but I was curious. That got me curious about the Bronze Age and I mean the real Bronze Age, I'm not talking about ancient Greece, but what happened before that. So I started reading some books and I started to realize how Glorantha was not all that much like the Bronze Age, even though it had some elements that were Bronze Age. And that inspired me to start thinking about doing something that was truly in the Bronze Age. So originally, at that time, this was a long time ago, even before Mithras was a thing, I was thinking of writing a BRP supplement. One of They used to do these kinds of supplements called monographs that were just a single author handing in their own basic work. Uh, they received very little attention from the publisher, little editing, and, but they also didn't cost much and they didn't pay much. But that was an interesting way for, um, you know, homebrewers like me to put something out there that everybody could use. And there were a lot of interesting supplements that came out of that. And if I remember, classic fantasy started that way too. And so did Mithras Rome, which was originally going to be a monograph. And then it became uh, an actual supplement that Aleftar published for BRP. And now, of course, it's in the Mithras family. But uh, originally I wanted to make something like a Bronze Age equipment guide and Pete Nash talked me into doing something more specific and focusing on Mesopotamia. So we did that. And then I spent quite a lot of years reading and taking very detailed notes. And when I was ready to write it, I asked Paul to jump on. So we wrote it together. Fantastic. What about you, Paul? <laughs> well, I'm always excited by this sort of historical fantasy type of thing. And again, it's one of those things I thought I knew a little bit about the Bronze Age. I mean, looking through Chris's stuff, I knew I didn't know a little bit. And it's an absolutely fascinating era, you know, both in terms of the history and in terms of it. I think Chris used this term. It's a sickle swords and sorcery setting. Yeah. You know, it's kind of an absolutely brilliant setting for that type of story. 
it's got that sort of rawness about it. But also, you've got this hugely sophisticated, you know, lots of culture there. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite different to anything we know. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. So, so what about the the mythical side of it is there sort of like um thesis spells and sorcery and folk magic in in this supplement um, even though we tried to cleave as close to historical as possible the uh, babylonian culture is very rich in myth so we brought all of that in and anything that we could latch onto to create something mythical we did so it's in, it's actually the end product although you could play it as a straight historical you could also play it and ignore the historical elements and treat it as a purely a sickle sword and sorcery setting. You could play it either way, really, or play it as something in between. It's really up to you. But um, we reinvented the magic systems, so we have all new all new magic. We're not using any of the core Mithras magic. We have our own our own sorcery system. Um, our system of incantations, which is, I guess, sim a little bit similar to theism. We've got um, several kinds of divination, which is really about discovering the will of the gods. And we've got um, liturgical songs, which have magical effects. And exorcism, which is similar to animism, but they're all slightly different. It's not it's not totally removed from Mithras because it feels very much like Mithras subsystems, but they have slightly different rules, even the ones that are similar. And tying all of this together is a system that Paul developed that's all about personal purity. So Babylonians believed in personal purity and that all kinds of things could affect your personal purity. Your purity was your, your ability to relate to the gods. So in this system, if if you break a taboo, you take a hit to your purity. Um, it, if you uh, if you shed blood, you can take a hit to your purity. If if you cast a sorcery spell, you take a hit to your purity. If someone casts a sorcery spell on you, you take a hit to your purity. So all of these things serve to ablate your purity. And if your purity gets too low, things happen to you, and you become unable to cast incantations. And other things happen to you. You become socially awkward. Wow. And is that a system? Yeah. Is that a system you you've created then, Paul? This personal purity system. Yes. So it's a it's a big deal in terms of sort of Babylonian beliefs and beliefs in the Arab region at this time, and it's something we wanted the game to reflect. And then it sort of became quite natural to tie in some of the magic here, you know, especially the incantations which is the magic of invoking the gods in yeah. a certain level of personal purity. Lots of beliefs in terms of things we've used to develop, some of the magical spells, that's involved. And again, be able to enter a temple, that requires a degree of personal purity. Purity is also tied up with illness. And it's a weird, you know, it's a combination of things mm. there. But yeah, it felt very natural to try and to bring that into a game as a mechanical effect. So it, it seems to me a bit like... Um, sanity or tenacity yes. is is that yeah. yeah that's absolutely fair and that's sort of an inspiration it's, it is for somewhat us. like sanity or it may be a bit like the cthulhu mythos skill that you have in cthulhu except where in cthulhu the game call of cthulhu 
your Cthulhu Mythos skill continues to rise until it gets to a point where it's causing you problems. But in Mythic Babylon, you start with a high number and your purity falls until it causes you problems. But there are ways to regain purity. It's, a, it's probably a little bit more fluid than the Cthulhu Mythos because you never, you never really lose your Cthulhu Mythos once you start gaining it. But purity you can restore. You can restore small amounts just by bathing or, or casting a spell on you to get a fresh wind to blow the, the evils away. But um, otherwise you have to make sacrifices, offerings to the gods to regain your purity. So does everybody have this, all characters have this personal purity? Or is it just yes. the, yeah, all right, got you. All, all characters have it. It's more important for some than for others. Yeah. But once personal purity drops to a low level, there are social effects. You know, nice. People won't trust you. They won't like you. You're, you're wrong. In, in one of our playtest sessions, the, um, the characters decided that only the warriors should be fighting. And uh, there, we have one physician in our playtest who um, was already at one of the purity thresholds and didn't want to lose any purity. So as a character, she didn't want to risk shedding any blood. So she made a mental decision that she would contribute to the combat in any way that she could, but would not shed blood. And the shedding of blood was left to the other characters for whom purity mattered less. It, so it, ha it obviously has a, a real impact on role playing as well, uh, rather than just the game mechanics. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You, you mentioned beforehand about um, swords and sickles, and I was wondering, um, are there new combat styles and new weapons in the supplement as well? Uh, new weapons? Well, I suppose so. The weapons are rather limited. You've got maces and spears and bows. Um, there are a few weapons that are iconic to the area. So one of those is the sickle sword, which is a very expensive weapon at this time. Um, and it's not quite a sword, it, it's made all of metal, but it's descended more from an axe and behaves like an axe. And a, a similar weapon would be an Egyptian kopesh, which you may have heard of. Um, and they also have battle nets and they had things called throw sticks, which they were used in hunting. They, there's some speculation in historical texts that they worked a bit like boomerangs. You could throw them into the bush to flush out game and that sort of thing. But also throw them at your enemy who's running away. And um, the fighting stick is really just a stick <laughs> that you fight with. <laughs> <laughs> that you just hit people very hard with. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, we do have combat styles for these different things. Yeah. So I yeah, think we've we got this thing called combat style. fighting style. You've got what, Sai? All new combat styles and is it do do you see um play how do you see players and gms engaging with the supplement is it that they transport their campaign to mesopotamia or can people dip in and out of it i would say no that you're it's really designed to start a fresh campaign there Although if, if you were playing a historical campaign elsewhere and you wanted to go to Babylon, you could certainly do that. But um, another inspiration behind writing this book was, um, you know, there's so many settings out there that are based on medieval Europe 
I'd say the vast majority. And and of the ones that aren't, they're almost always based on ancient China or Japan. But from elsewhere in the world, you find very little that's inspired by other cultures. So I wanted to create something that had enough elements in it that if you wanted to be inspired to make your own fantasy setting, you could take this book as a starting point and just let the ideas wash over you and take what you wanted out of it and, and bring those into the setting that you were going to create yourself. So you could absolutely, there's lots of things in this book you could take out of it and bring into a fantasy setting. We've got loads of city descriptions that you could you could probably just port any one of these cities into another setting. And you don't even need to change the name because the names are not familiar to people. Like how many people would say, oh, Tutul, yeah, I know that city. Not many, not many. So you could throw these into any setting and nobody would know where they came from. What actually comes in the supplement is there, are there maps in there, historical content? Can you sort of like give me a, a brief overview of what will actually be in the supplement? Yeah, sure. So we've, we've got it split. I mean, it's roughly split, I suppose, three ways. So there's things about the historical era, the culture, you know, what people were like, yeah. what they did, you know, how they lived, where the player characters are going to fit in for this. Then we're coming into the mechanical elements where there's, you know, of course, how to create characters that fit into this setting, mechanical systems involving, you know, the magical systems we've mm. mentioned. And then we're talking about, again, timeline, historical timeline, the gazetteer of all the places, and that's absolutely rife with adventure hooks. Some oh, nice. of them sort of based on historical events, some of them more mythical. And then, of course, we've got, you know, monsters and there's some all sorts of strange mythical creatures coming in there and then yeah. things like beliefs tied in with demons and spirits in the underworld yeah there's some and again there's some really fresh original stuff there yeah so i suppose in terms of what people if people want to use this for other fantasy gaming they'd certainly find things to lift yeah paul what's your favorite monster you... <laughs> i'm third yeah, this massive Thunderbird thing. I, I was just about when you were talking about mythical creatures, I, I immediately hooked on to that and think, you know, what sort of mythical creatures are we getting? You know, are they desert dwelling or tree dwelling or? Got a, we've got a, we've got a mixture. So we've got sort of some of these massive. Okay, I picked out the massive thing, but there's others. There's things like forest guardians, like the monster in the Epic of Gilgamesh regarding guardian of the cedar forest there's various sort of you know i suppose humanoids with animal features that come in as and then you've got the immaterial spirits and demons things right. which will possess and cause diseases or things which are tied in with the underworld there's fun things called bad news demons who possess them <laughs> to make them be spread malicious stories fantastic i love that i love that concept <laughs> is the when you talk about the underworld i sort of like get greek and roman mythology in my head at that point is is it a similar thing it's not a million miles removed from this right so of course you've got this but, demand but it is 100. the underworld the mesopotamian underworld is a is the place that people go when they die, uh, providing they've been properly buried and remembered. Um, and when they go there, it's not really a pleasant place. It's 
they say that people wear uh, their clothes are made of the feathers of dead birds and they eat dust and all they have to drink is water and it sounds like they're constantly judged <laughs> but that that's where everybody believes they'll go and there's no escaping it so you don't go to a nicer place no there's no uh, no there's no paradise Paradise is here on Earth. And so it's not too Earth. dissimilar to the ancient Greece, hey, the Greek Hades yeah. or something like that. Fantastic. And how how far along are we with the, oh, sorry, are you with this um, publication? Do we have a, a date or is it edited? Is it together yet? Tell me about it's that. It's in for editing now and art. So we've, the whole thing has been written and gone over several times by Paul and I. So now the editor is reading it. They'll come back with some recommendations and we're starting to put together the art direction documents. And uh, I think Lawrence is gonna commission the cover first. So we'll see. I can't tell you about dates. That's a question for Lawrence. Yeah, well, hopefully um, he'll give us an update um, in his monthly updates that he gives us. So imagine that I, um, I've bought the supplement, it's, it's, you know, been published. How would you advise players and GMs to engage with it? What would be your recommendations? I would, I would say there's two things. There's things to read and just enjoy and other parts just dip into for ideas. So I'd say sort of reading, if you were set on reading the working in, you know, doing things mm. within ancient Babylon, it's worth reading the culture chapters, certainly. And then things involving the gazetteer and so on, I'd say dipping in, look through, find somewhere that looks interesting, pick it out, play there. The other thing we've got is a city generator. Nice. So dip into that, generate your own city, um, you know, go play. And then other things I'll say is, you know, we've got a GM section where, of course, it's just give going into detail on how you might engage with things. You know, how to use the cultural elements, how they're going to come into play. We've also got a page of, I suppose, well, player role-playing advice. Nice. How do you get into the mindset of playing someone who lives here? That particular section is inspired very much by Glorantha and RuneQuest. They, in uh, earlier RuneQuest, they had pages that you could hand out to players that were titled What the Priest Said, which was a page of teachings that your character would have learned about their culture and about other people. So we've taken a page from that and put together a, a similar page called What the Tablet House Taught Me About Being a Babylonian. So it's it it's set up for cultural role-playing in much the same way Glorantha. You, you mentioned a, a city generator? Yes. Tell me, tell me about that. So well, so essentially there's tables to roll on to decide, you know, if you've got a city that's fitting into this type in this setting, right. sumo and, Ad, and you'd, you know, again, be able to decide, you know, is it a big city, a small city? How old is it? Maybe it even goes back before the mythical flood, you know, because the interesting thing, it's easy to forget this looking at things now, mm. but at the time of, you know, Hammurabi, this culture is already thousands of years old. So, and then also, of course, what's going on in the city, what the problems are troubling it. You know, are there things that the locals have to deal with? Are there things for the player characters to deal with? 
And then, of course, we've got things involving on involving, well, Chris put together a, a yearly events table. I, I definitely like the personal purity. I'm loving that concept. I've got it going around in my head already. And so I'm really looking forward to, to that and seeing how that works out. But also getting that feel of, you know, the, the whole um, Babylonian culture and um, ethos and religion. It sounds absolutely fantastic. So... Just before I let you go, closing words, you know, it's going to come out soon. What what would you like to say to the listeners about your publication? I'll say I'll say it's a it's if you're interested in this either ancient history, yeah, this type of deep cultural role playing, or this idea of, you know, fantastic and unfamiliar monsters and magic. Yeah. I think this might be interesting enough to take a look. And yeah, we put a lot of work in, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I, I hope it opens people's minds to the idea of using another ancient culture or old culture as a base for their their own play instead of always just going back to the usual knights and shining armor. So I, I hope there's enough in here that people can take away from it. I mean, certainly there's quite a lot. It's a big book. Thank you so much for taking time out. I know you're both at different time zones, so thank you very much for organising that. And yeah, we will look forward to it um, coming live and, and being on sale. So, thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thank you to both Chris and Paul there for taking time out of their hectic schedules to have that interview. I hope it's whetted your appetite for Mythic Babylon as much as it whetted mine. Now, just to remind you, I'm always looking for people to get involved with the podcast. So if you have something you would like to contribute, then do drop me a line. Use my email at um, inwills, that's I-N-W-I-L-S at gmail.com or contact me via any of the social media links or forums. And if you would like to support this podcast beyond listening and subscribing to it, then there are a range of tiers on my Patreon page. Links to this and all my social media is down in the show notes. And next up, a bit of chat from moi in Wills uh, about rules and campaign concepts. So as, as a GM, one aspect of the game which I really look forward to is the awarding and the use of experience roles. And recently I started a topic on the Mithras forums to see how many experience roles GMs awarded. It was very clear from the discussion that few, if any, sign up to the idea of rewarding players for excellent role playing, with most people having a standard number of roles modified by, of course, the characteristic scores. Two, two seem to be the popular number, um, with more being given out, especially at the end of a series of ventures. I made a huge mistake, shows that I'm a really novice GM. With my last series of adventures, the plot was so involved and long that the players had numerous, well, nearly 30 experience roles to spend. Okay, close your mouths. In the immortal world, word of Mary Poppins, we are not codfish. Now, I have done two things in order to correct this. Initially, I have reduced the number of sessions that a series of adventures will last. 
This will hopefully allow the players to get involved with a plot line without them getting lost in multiple layer plot lines, which I tend to create. You can see that I'm a great fan of murder mysteries. The second thing I've done is allowed the players to spend their experience roles at the end or beginning of each session in order to progress their skills. Only when they want to learn new skills and spells will they be required to go back to um, civilization. So how do you use experience roles in your campaign? Do you have a really good method that you use? I would love to hear about them. So just drop me an email to inwills at gmail.com or contact me via my social media or via the forums. Now, if you are interested in seeing how the players in my own campaign develop their characters using those numerous experience roles, then you can find out what they spent the roles on in the latest actual play video on YouTube. Also, if you're interested in listening to an interview I did with one of the players, Mr. Pickles, then the video is there as well. It was great to ask him about how he wants to see Bartleby the theist progress and his motivations and character concepts for him. Links, as ever, are in the show notes. So that's it. The fourth episode of the official Mithras Matters podcast comes to an end. Slightly different content this month, but please do let me know what you would like to be included in future episodes and spread the word. There is a great community surrounding the Mithras game, so let's share how much we enjoy the game and encourage everyone to see why Mithras matters. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast so you get a notification when the next month's episode surfaces. Hopefully, September's episode will include an interview with the creator-writer of the module Hazard's Treasure, as myself and Mr. Pickles ask about the concept and feel of the module. We're also going to have Lawrence back next month, and he's going to start a series of segments about the rules. And I hope next month is going to be all about that evade skill. So until then, let's hope that all our opposed roles succeed and provide us with a well-deserved special. Have a great month of gaming, everyone, and I will see you again in September. See you later. Bye. The content of this podcast is covered by the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. So please give appropriate credit if you are sharing or copying any part of this podcast. Thank you.